Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring... Dean Gamastro, former member of First off, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, today's guest is the former MP for Peterborough, Mr. Dean Del Mastro. Dean, I want to uh, thank you so much for doing this today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Uh, my first question to all my guests is, uh, where did your sense of duty come from? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I guess... Uh, you know, even from when I was a, a young kid, um, my parents had been involved in volunteer positions and so forth on political campaigns, All, always liberal campaigns, but political campaigns. So I had been around them, uh, I guess, from a young age. Uh, and um, and it really didn't matter, municipal, uh, provincial, federal. Uh, they were uh, real advocates in, uh, in participating in democracy. And, and I guess it just kind of... Uh, I caught the bug, if you will, from them. Do you remember that first campaign that you worked on or you helped out on with your parents? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I remember uh, it would have been uh, probably uh, the first one I really have a, a significant memory of would have been the 1987 uh, Ontario campaign uh, where my parents had taken an active uh, role in supporting the candidate for Peterborough, who later would become the federal MP was Peter Adams. Uh, he uh, was a professor at Trent University. My mother had worked at Trent University uh, for a number of years at that time, and they had got behind that campaign, and that was kind of the first one I was, uh, you know, that I really had any kind of uh, involvement with. And did you envision yourself being political for your entire life with your parents or was it something that, because for me, what my parents did, I always wanted to do the exact opposite. So if they were involved in politics, I got as far away from politics as possible. So, no, I think, um, you know, uh, so in the 1990 provincial campaign, I'm almost ashamed to uh, acknowledge in Ontario, I, you know, I never voted and, uh, I was a university student at the time and it just didn't seem relevant to what we were doing. And uh, we kind of woke up one morning to find out that Bob Ray had won the provincial election. And I thought, I think everyone in Ontario said that. <laughs> how in the world can this happen? Right. Uh, and uh, so it was kind of a thought, well, you know, I can't sit by and watch that happen again. And then the next campaign that came up was the, uh, was the federal election of 93. And, uh, the local candidate when I was in Windsor was Herb Gray, and I uh, I worked to get students out uh, in support of Herb Gray uh, in '93. Uh, I was a um, I was a fervent supporter of the of the Kretchen Liberals at the time. Uh, it was how I grew up. Everybody in my family was kind of a, a learned behavior, and it's funny. I think that was more common years ago, where you kind of grew up in a family and. You know, if your grandparents and your parents and, you know, people at your church and so forth that always voted a certain way, you just you just did. Right. Uh, and uh, I don't know that that is uh, I don't know that that's you could say the same today. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of brand power in politics at the time and, and policies seemed to be something something separate. Uh, and uh, so I, I grew up and all of my my influence and so forth pointed me towards a liberal party and it wasn't until um, 
or I guess the 95 provincial campaign uh, when uh, uh, following uh, the Bob Ray government, uh, Mike Harris had came along and uh, that was a common sense revolution. And I started to reevaluate some of my, uh, how my own beliefs were, uh, were lining up with uh, party platforms. Uh, and that uh, kind of started me down the path of uh, looking at, you know, where the Liberal Party was going versus what I kind of believed in and stood for. So uh, I did assist uh, the Peterborough uh, provincial campaign in 95 and kind of stayed on. I was active in every campaign from then on. Uh, under the Progressive Conservatives in Provincial. Yeah, and then through Canadian Alliance, uh, I went and saw, uh, I'm going to say it was in maybe 97, uh, I went and saw Preston Manning speak, came to Peterborough. Uh, and, you know, I didn't think that he had a, I didn't think he had an entire holistic vision for Canada. But the areas that he hit on, um, uh, when he talked about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but he, you know, he mentioned that there wasn't an accompanying charter of responsibilities. And I thought, well, this really does make sense. How can we have rights without responsibilities, right? And I, I still think that's something that we haven't addressed. What is our responsibility to each other as citizens and, and so forth? So those sorts of notions really spoke to me. Uh, and they were things that I thought were worth fighting for. The, uh, the call for politics is uh, one that only a few people seem to have. And when they decide to get into politics, it's for their own reason. In uh, 2006, you decided to put your name on a ballot uh, and you uh, decided to run in your home riding of Peterborough. What was that decision like? Was it hard or was it easy? Because at that time, Peter Adams, the incumbent, was just announcing his retirement, if I'm not mistaken, and then you announced that you were running. So was it that catalyst of him actually announcing that he was going to retire that you said, you know what, it's my time to put my name in the ring? So I had volunteered in the 2004 Federal Conservative campaign here in Peterborough, and we were really convinced that we were going to win. And James Jackson was our candidate. He was a good man. Uh, and we really thought that uh, we had an excellent shot of winning uh, Peterborough. And then it didn't happen. Uh, and, um, you know, having been involved in around that campaign, I had some ideas as to why it didn't happen. Uh, it wasn't, in my view, it wasn't that the support wasn't there. It's the trust wasn't there. Uh, people looked at it and thought, yeah, we probably do need to change. Uh, they weren't necessarily thrilled with the direction of government or the direction of the country. Uh, but they just didn't trust uh, the other parties uh, were, um, you know, were an appropriate uh, avenue for change, right? <laughs> uh, trust is a big thing when it comes to voting. Uh, and I looked at the candidates that were running uh, for the Federal Conservative Party, and they were all good people. All the people that had stepped up were good people. Uh, many of them became uh, friends of mine. But I just looked at it and thought, I don't think they can win. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, I, was, I was the last candidate to step up, put my name forward. Um, I did what I normally do, which is, you know, if I decide that I'm determined on something, I, I put everything I've got into it. And uh, we won the nomination in Peterborough, I think it was on the sixth ballot by seven votes. I never trailed, but the whole idea of a preferential ballot wasn't something I really understood. Uh, and the idea of telling people to mark me as their second choice or third choice. I just was telling people, you know, I, I hope I'm your first choice. Uh, and, uh, and kind of got schooled a little bit by 
people had understood the system better. Uh, but we wound up, despite everything, we wound up winning on the on the last ballot, and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, won won the 2006 uh, election, which was a 56-day marathon uh, and a bit of a three-way split. Um, I think I won by 2,222 votes, which is easy to remember, and uh, uh, and really never looked back. I've uh, I've been fortunate in, uh, in the elections that I've ran, and I've uh, I've always found the support of the people. I've never I've never lost, so I don't know that uh, I don't know that experience in elections. Um, but I've always been determined, just like uh, I guess it's a bit of a sports mentality. I've always been determined that I'm going to. If I'm going to compete, I'm going to do my very best. Uh, and uh, when given the opportunity, as I said uh, uh, in my uh, final address to Parliament, you know, I was given an opportunity, and I thought it was my job to make the very most of that opportunity, and I did. I left nothing on the field. Um, going back to that 2006 campaign, politicians or candidates to be elected officials usually have an issue, an issue that they see that the government of the time is dropping the ball on, it's particularly in uh, uh, their riding. What was that issue for you? You say you thought the other candidates in the, uh, the nomination con- uh, contest for the Conservative candidacy wasn't weren't up to the job, but what was the issue that you said, you know what, if I win, this is the issue I'm going to address? I, and I wouldn't say they weren't up to the job. I just didn't think they could win. That's, that's yeah, different. I apologize. That's a different, that's a different, uh, that's a different issue. But I, I think that for me, um, I had been in business in Peterborough for a number of years. And the reason why I was in business is because there weren't any jobs. Uh, there was no jobs for people with my education. And most of my friends that I went to university with were working in the GTA. And that was people that, including people from Peterborough, that just weren't able to come back here to work. Uh, and Peterborough was a almost a legendary manufacturing uh, community. We had uh, GE, Edward Marine, uh, West Clocks, uh, Quaker Oats, which is still here, Coca-Cola manufacturers, all in Minute Maid juice products here. Um, but that was dying, and uh, and there really didn't seem to be anybody stepping forward with with a vision for how are we going to build the next generation of people from Peterborough that could succeed here because other generations had found tremendous success here and it's a great community it's a wonderful place to live we're right on the edge of a beautiful uh, uh, natural backdrop uh, here with the Trent Severn waterway and all the north of lakes uh, and it's a tremendous quality of life but people have to be able to earn a living uh, and uh, what I saw was too many people were either had either determined that they just couldn't make a living here, and that was a lot of my friends, or they were taking a substantial discount uh, on you know what what their what their true value was in the workforce just to be here, uh, and um, you know I didn't think that was right. And what I saw, and what I really went to work on addressing, was our infrastructure deficit here. Uh, everything from internet infrastructure, which is non-existent in a lot of the rural parts of the riding. Now, when I say rural, it's not rural like Northern Ontario. I mean, yes, we have farms and, and countryside, but it's also close to major centers and it shouldn't be that difficult. But I had parts of, of the riding that were still on party lines. And, you know, you say that to young people and they don't even really understand what a party line is. But they didn't have their own, like they couldn't even get dial-up internet because they didn't have their own phone line. 
uh, and cell phones, like there's still areas in the riding, despite my best efforts, where you know cell phones you drive into a into a black abyss and they don't work. Uh, so we had to address that. Uh, we had we were a nice community at the end of a four lane highway. So we had become a cul-de-sac and an afterthought uh, for companies that were looking to invest. So I wrote reports calling for an investment into the airport. We've now got uh, uh, Canada's busiest. Uh, small airport in the country is now Peterborough, uh, which is which is really driving a tremendous uh, economy. Seneca's Flight School uh, moved here, for example, which has really been uh, and uh, Flying Colors has, has grown in leaps and bounds. So that investment that I fought for uh, into the airport has really changed uh, the dynamics of of this community's economy. Uh, Highway 407, which is a, was a big issue here in Ontario. We needed that uh, second four-lane highway in Ontario, but it was never going to come all the way through and connect to my highway, which actually extends all the way to the nation's capital in Ottawa. And I thought if that bypasses us, we're we're all we're going to remain bypassed. And the provincial government had it at the time; they had a, a an act called the Places to Grow Act. And the Places to Grow Act was for Peterborough; it was anything but. And I looked at it and said, "Well, for the next thirty years, you're not going to grow." Yeah. And I look at it and well, if we don't grow them, we're going to die. I mean, you can't, there's no such thing as standing still. You either move forward uh, and you grow and you meet the challenges of tomorrow or you fall behind and you continue to fall behind. And that to me wasn't the future that I saw for Peterborough. And, uh, and, and more broadly, I looked at a scandal plague government uh, that uh, had lost its way that I didn't think had a, had a vision for the future of Canada. Uh, and uh, or had a had a vision for Canada that you know in my view was either you know too backward looking uh, or too small. And I I see Canada as a country, and I and I firmly believe this now that Canada is a country that that can stand out on the world stage, that can lead. Uh, and I believe that on so many things in my time in government, we really did, and we punched above our weight. I'm proud of that. That twenty six that two thousand six campaign. Was it hard for you to see your name on that ballot for the first time when you went into the actual voting booth and you got to put the X beside your name? When I talk to candidates, they say it was the most surreal situation of their life to see their name because you expect you're going to get your vote and then you see all these other votes come in for you. <laughs> it's kind of terrifying, uh, to be honest with you, because... <laughs> See, I was in business in Peterborough, and you know, even though I had I had volunteered in campaigns and so forth, I mean, uh, politics really is divisive. Uh, and even though uh, I was always a person that uh, thrived in building friendships and relationships, and I get along with everybody, uh, and uh, I've always wanted to be, and and you know, in politics, I had to get over this because I always wanted to be liked, and I had to deal with this like in high school. And, school i was always the person that tried to be friends with everyone uh and um you know i kind of when you get into politics you have to accept that sometimes people don't know you they've never they they've maybe never even heard anything you've had to say on a given subject but they've already decided they don't like you uh and that's hard and when your name starts to go up on election signs on lawns and and you know, and and your family's in business in town, and your name is also on that business. The phone starts ringing, saying, you know, uh, people voicing their displeasures with something. Uh, you know, that that's hard. And yeah, getting in there and actual election day, election day is terrifying. 
and you go in to put your name on the ballot, you just sit there, you're powerless. There's nothing else you can do. You're just waiting for the numbers to be counted. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not like anything else that I've ever experienced. Uh, and what I will say is, uh, uh, you know, people run for different reasons. For me, it was never about, it was never about me. Uh, I was employed, I was doing well uh, in life business. Uh, I've been married, uh, when, my, when my first election came around, I'd been married already for a decade. Uh, you know, we were kind of on a path uh, and it never included running for politics. Uh, and I just kind of went to my wife one day and said, you know, I think I'm going to run. She looked at and she thought about it for a second and thought, well, yeah, I think you're kind of made for this, right? And that was it. And uh, we never really, you know, but she told me, like, if you're going to do it, you're going to put everything into it because, you know, we're not running to lose, right? And yeah. uh, and, that, and that that was it. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for anybody that, you know, that, that puts their name on a ballot, puts their heart into an election, because I know uh, how difficult that is. And I know how it cuts. It cuts even within families, right? And even yeah. within friendship groups, right? Like their friends will look at you and say, wow, you're running. Really for them, right? And it's like, yeah, well, that's kind of, then you get into these philosophical discussions about what you believe versus what they believe. And, and you find that, wow, I, I realize, you know, but, but the other thing that you realize and, you know, and this is really something that's missing in, in public debate and discussions today, which is that ultimately most people have the same end goals, right? We may disagree about how we get there. Uh, and, you know, what I used to say to people all the time, and I found it disarming uh, and, and, and kind of the basis for a good conversation on any given subject, but I would always take meetings with people that perhaps disagreed with me or were trying to sway my vote on something. And I would say, you know, we disagree on this issue, but there will be other issues in the future we agree on. And there's no reason for us, you know, just because we happen to disagree on this, you know, to leave this room or to, to part thinking less of each other. I respect your position and I, and I hope you respect mine. And there just isn't enough of that uh, today. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people outside of Peterborough or people listening to this interview may look at it and say, you know, I'm surprised to hear that coming from, uh, from Del Mastro. But, but the reality is, the job I was asked to do or, or relied upon to do in Ottawa, which was largely to carry water for, you know, the, whatever was threatening the government on any given day, as some people would describe it as defending the indefensible, uh, was a, um, you know, was largely, it, it largely pitted you or, or pushed you into a very partisan mindset, a very partisan direction. You've got forces trying to tear the government down, my job was to build the government up and defend it. But within the riding and within and to my constituents, uh, I had a very different um, a very different identity, which was somebody that worked hard for the community. Uh, I always took meetings. I volunteered on behalf of virtually every charity that there was uh, and supported them uh, and really tried to inspire young people uh, whenever I had the opportunity, not just to take part in democracy, but to believe in whatever, you know, whatever dream they had, whatever really drove them, whatever they were passionate about, uh, to really pursue those things uh, and that they're possible. 
Why do you think politics is so divided today? Because you talk about how in 2006, it wasn't as divided as it is today. So what is your opinion on why we are such a divided uh, uh, political uh, realm than 10 years ago, five years ago? Um, Well, it's it's interesting. As social media has kind of developed uh, and the 24-hour news cycle has kind of developed, these became very powerful communications tools and they could have been used or perhaps maybe many would argue that maybe they should have been used as a greater public forum whereby many views would be heard and, and, and absorbed and listened to. And instead what they kind of became is uh, become as echo chambers, right? Uh, and you've got all these enclaves within social media and within uh, even within conventional media now where um there isn't a lot of sharing of ideas between people that have uh, that have given positions on on subjects and and even less uh, cross party uh, agreement and and uh, and cooperation uh, and you know I think that it successive governments actually in Ottawa uh, have responsibility for that we didn't work as well across the aisle as we could have or should have. Um, especially after the 2011 election when we won the majority uh, government, we could have been a lot more magnanimous about it, right? We could have been, we could have extended that uh, olive branch uh, to the opposition. And I think, you know, if we made, uh, and we made mistakes, uh, but if we made uh, any major mistakes in terms of, uh, in terms of the tenor of debate in the country, I would say it really occurred after that 2011 election, where after two successive minority parliaments, which were divisive, uh, we had an opportunity to be more magnanimous than we were, uh, to be more uniting than we were. And instead, we continued to fight an election, even though there wasn't going to be one for four years. And I think in minority parliaments, we have that now in Canada, you've kind of got that ongoing election mentality whereby at any given point kind of look at it and think I might have to go to voters and you know I've always got to be defending my flank um we didn't have that after 2011 and uh and it was an opportunity to turn the temperature down and we didn't I also think it's fed uh you know it's fed from what we see to the south uh of us in the U.S. we really got to work to try and uh and avoid um, you know, what, what we see occurring elsewhere. And, uh, we've got a failure or almost a collapse of conventional media and newspapers and so forth, print advertising. It's really changed how people consume their news, uh, and social media, as I said, rather than, rather than becoming this forum where everybody kind of talks or listens to each other, it's really become a forum where people attack, viciously attack. Like there are, there are the tenor on, Social media is always shocking to me, uh, you know, how nasty and vicious and cruel people can be on social media, but also how they tend to talk to each other and tend to pat each other on the back for having the same idea versus listening to other people. Uh, And, you know, the great centers of thought and and development of policy and so forth are secondary or post-secondary schools and graduate schools and so forth have really became a, uh, you know, I think that is, people are less and less encouraged to stand out there 
and more and more encouraged to be part of a, um, you know, what's thought to be socially acceptable or, uh, or politically acceptable. And, and, you know, I think, you know, when we really celebrate a diversity of voices or ideas uh, and, and, and realize that, you know, somebody that doesn't think exactly like me or see solutions exactly the way I do, doesn't make them a bad person. It makes them different uh, from me. Uh, and they're not my enemy, uh, and they may have some good ideas, and, and, you know, maybe I'm not right all the time, but less and less we see people at being able to acknowledge that working, uh, you know, working with other parties or uh, members of other parties is seen as weakness. It's, it's even, you know, it's even um, uh, suggested as weakness uh, in the media, and it's, uh, it's too bad. Well, I... I... I find the, with, like you said, with the rise of social media, with the rise of politics, of the divisive politics down in the South, people don't even want to have a conversation now. They want to sit behind their keyboard and hit out 20 characters or 120 characters on Twitter. And then that's it. That's their uh, a contribution to the political uh, conversation, where I think even, like you said, in a minority government, which Harper had under in 2006 and 2008, we were talking to each other still, right? It was that talking. And then we saw the rise of the far right down the South and it sort of started creeping up here, not saying that the conservative party was far right up here, but it, it divides personalities, especially in Canadian population where you don't want to talk to the liberals or you don't want to talk to the NDP or the Bloc or the Greens or the conservatives, yeah. because like you said, it would be seen as too weak. And it's just, it's a shame that that's where we've gotten as a society. Yeah. I think the, um, you know, we have issues, you know, you can't deny that there's issues that divide people, right? There's issues, whether they're social issues or economic issues or what have you, there are issues where people are simply not going to uh, agree. They're not going to coalesce around it. Right. You try to find common ground or you work for common ground on them and you try to, you, you do your best to address the middle. And, you know, the outliers, what people now call the extreme right or left, while you realize that they're probably not going to get what they want, yeah. right? But, that, but that's okay, right? That's how a democracy works. Um, you know, I think that we had, uh, and, you know, one of the things I was very proud of, uh, yeah, I think Canada had, in 2010, we had came through the uh, Great Recession, which was prompted by, you know, the real estate defaults in the U.S. And we came through it kind of shining colors. And we hosted the 2010 uh, Vancouver Olympics. And I remember, you know, that time uh, as being perhaps the most united I had ever seen Canada, uh, the most proud and patriotic I had ever seen our country. I think people broadly from, of all ideologies and political persuasions, the one thing we could agree on is that our country was great. And, and we, were, we were really united from coast to coast. There was very little support for sovereignty in Quebec. It had basically been, been completely extinguished. And that was confirmed in the 2011 election when the bloc was, was wiped out. Uh, and you know, I think that uh, you know, despite some of our differences, we had also coalesced around a, a bunch of values and ideas and concepts and identities that I think galvanized Canadians uh, and, and really we had an identity. Uh, and I don't really know how, uh, I guess it's difficult to say how exactly we lost that. Um, you know, I think some of the things that have occurred, whether it's the, 
emergence of the cancel culture, uh, the permanent uh, kind of uh, obstruction and uh, opposition uh, that we've seen um, on all sides uh, that's really entrenched people, the echo chambers that people are living in, which is encouraging people both, uh, to the extremes on the right and left, right? Um, so if you're never talking to people uh, from the other side, it's really hard to find middle ground, right? And it's pulling people to the to the extremes of, of right and left orthodoxies. And, I, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, it's a challenge because it's, in some ways, uh, some of the, the concepts and so forth, they can be, uh, you know, they can they can draw people in, uh, and and it's very easy to see people drawn in, and and we've got a loss of uh, we really do have a loss of faith in a lot of the media, which is, uh, you know, which I think they've got to work to get that trust back, uh, and they can't get wrapped up in the in the politics of the day. They've got to be objective, and the notion that you know that we have um, we may have a media that I, I you know doesn't at all time calls, call balls and strikes uh, in their reporting, the way that they're coming in, I think is, you know, and, and both sides feel that way, right? The left feels that we've got a right-wing media, the right feels we've got a left-wing media, and so people probably say, well, they're doing their job then. But it's not really, you know, it, it's not really playing it that way. Uh, I, I, th I think that, um, you know, I think that in order to kind of bridge the divide, uh, it's going to take a couple of things. And I think one of the things that we've got to do is go back to revisiting kind of uh, how did we get here uh, and, and how do we move forward? Um, and, uh, you know, as I've said earlier, minority politics are, are by their very nature divisive. Um, but the one thing that, you know, you'd love to see all parties come out and acknowledge is that, you know, we're all in this together, right? Whatever, whatever outcome we manage or fail to manage, We'll either share in the success or share in the failure, uh, and you know if you if you start on it from that point, you should be able to drive some solutions, and and it really does require people to take down the temperature, uh, and uh, it doesn't mean that governments aren't going to be held to account. It doesn't mean that scandals aren't going to be covered, and you know, and successes aren't going to be celebrated. It just means uh, that you know you have to you have to see people as as people and not impugn every every one of their motivations being selfish or uh, or ideologically driven um you know i i think democratic reform is critical uh and uh, how we how we look at democratic reform uh in canada um you know i think really matters um i i believe that the way things have evolved now in canadian politics you know, you're talking to a person that actually served in the prime minister's office. Uh, so much power has, and I don't believe this was intended, but so much power is concentrated in the hands of so few in our government. Uh, and they have they have ability that they don't have, like that the U.S. president, for example, doesn't have, the British prime minister doesn't have. Uh, the prime minister in Canada uh, uh, and, and the prime minister's office commands a tremendous amount of power by virtue of the fact that um, votes are whipped, um, members, uh, individual members have really had a lot of their power and ability uh, and, and, and sway stripped from them. We see parties stripping people of their, uh, of their uh, booting them out of caucus and domination, but 
we have parties that won't even allow, and, and it's kind of encouraged by the media, uh, whereby they're saying, you know, how can you allow this candidate to run for you? But the very essence of a democracy is that people, the voters, should be able to pick who, and, and if anybody, if anybody bears a responsibility for somebody being nominated that isn't appropriate for the job, it's the voters. So if you want to hold a, if you want to hold voters responsible for who they nominate or elect, I guess that's okay. But but it is a democracy. We should respect the will of voters. And instead, we we're, we're further driving this concentration of, of power into the leaders' hands and the leaders' offices for all the parties by saying, uh, you know, you need to disqualify this candidate. You need to boot this person in office. Uh, you need to. Um, uh, you know, if somebody votes either with the government or against the government, an opposition party, if they vote against a party line whip, this should not be an issue of leadership in a party. It's somebody that has been elected by a group of constituents that feels it's their obligation to vote one way or another to reflect the views of their constituents. And uh, unfortunately, the way that things have evolved in Canada has just become such a concentration of power in offices. And to me, the best way to, to do that is to take a look. We've got to take a look at the party system and say, the party system itself is what's failing Canadians. That's what's driving us. I, you know, if, if I ran for politics tomorrow and I got up on a stage in front of a whole, just a group of a complete cross-section of voters, and I spoke about 10 issues and people looked at it and said, you know what? I really agree with him on eight or nine or all 10 issues. Yeah. And then I said, by the way, I'm really excited to be running for the Liberal Party of Canada. 60% of the people there would immediately say, well, I might have agreed with them, but I, I never voted for them. Well, okay, but see, this is what's driving us apart. Or if I said I was running for the Conservative Party, you'd get the same reaction, right? So if we actually go back to it and say, okay, we're going to vote based on ideas, principles, values, um, you know, uh, uh, initiatives, vision, these sorts of things that would actually bring groups of voters together that may not, they may not have the exact ideology. They may not, you could have somebody that, you know, that's really climate conscious and somebody that looks at it and, 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 and feels that, you know, the economy and their job and, and, uh, you know, and, and kitchen table issues are what, what's going to drive their votes. You could have those people coalesce on, on ideas and principles and strategies and so forth versus, uh, versus the way that we're doing it now. And, you know, it would be really interesting if a federal budget was being voted on. It didn't necessarily result in the fall of a government yeah. if it didn't pass. And they actually had to uh, negotiate with given MPs, uh, you know, we're always put in a position. And when I say we're, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm going back a bit, but MPs are always put in a position of all or nothing, right? And this is the problem with, with omnibus legislation, right? You're always put in this position where, you know, there's 10 things there, there that you like, there's five things you don't like, or you don't think have anything to do with the bill, uh, but they come to you and say, we're voting in favor of it, or we're voting against it. And you look at it and think, well, it's not really a yes or no question, but you wind up with a yes or no option. Uh, and sometimes the consequences of that yes or no, I mean, uh, ask Brent Rathgaber in, in Alberta, the consequences of that yes, no can be catastrophic to your politi political career, right? 
Um, and, and he had a, he took a principled position on um, his bill, which uh, which dealt with uh, access to information largely, uh, and um, and and being more transparent uh, with with Canadians, uh, didn't have the support of the party, and and he he followed that right down to its end, which was he couldn't be a part of the party anymore. Well, why? Why does that happen, right? Uh, and and we've seen that with the current government too, whereby we had government ministers forced to step down yeah. from their positions and ran as independents. Why? Because they ran afoul of the prime minister, but maybe they were running, and, and, and certainly you could make this argument because they weren't all defeated in the next election. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they were running consistent with what the voters were hoping for or wanted or needed. And, and maybe they were being ethical and maybe they were actually holding up a standard that Canadians would like all of their elected officials to. So it doesn't fit within the party system. And that's where I would start uh, democratic reforms in Canada. And if we do that, and if we do it right, I think you'll see less of this push to the, to the outer limits of, the, of political ideology. And you'll see more people brought back into a larger tent, which is, you know, uh, which I think is, would both be healing and constructive for the country. Uh, and, you know, I, if, if it were up to me, I would say, you know what, let's get the prime minister and the executive out of the House of Commons, right? Let's not have them voting on their own legislation. Because, it's, you know, let's, you know, and, and let's start, let's have the House of Commons as a place where there's real debate, real discussions on bills, real discussions on solutions, not, not something that's foisted upon them by the government minister or the, or, or the well-served, you know, the well-intended bureaucrats that write most of the legislation. Right? Uh, let's, let's, have, let's have those debates by the people that are elected to have them. And let's, um, you know, and let's be very um, transparent about it. And let's not have people under so much pressure to follow a party line that, you know, to the extent where MPs don't write speeches, I like, I'm sure people are, are well aware of this, that half of the speeches given on the floor of the House of Commons are handed to the members and they just go in and read them. What is the point of that? Like, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like it's a phony exercise, right? Like, let's hear your own thoughts. Let's hear what your constituents are saying. And the only way to do that is to, is to remove the overpowering influence and, and pressure of of uh, of the party system that we've got right now so i think there's a better vision for that i think as i said if you remove the prime minister and the executive out of the house of commons and it operated as a chamber whereby um you know confidence in the in the current government people could even vote at that point for the person that they believe would be best suited to be prime minister uh, and they might even run with a with a given executive, so you know who who's your finance minister going to be, or uh, like the idea that these are the top executive positions in the country, and they are, but we aren't necessarily putting people in with executive experience. You might see different people run and different outcomes, uh, and you might you know you might get to a better place. As I said, I believe it would encourage people to come in from the fringes and to reunite under a larger uh, Canadian tent. One thing that I find that most Canadians who I talk to uh, have an issue with politicians is 
when they give a speech in the House of Commons, they're looking for the 10 second sound bite that's going to be on the news that night. They're not looking for what their constituents want. They're looking to make the news so they can get a higher profile, so they can potentially get a cabinet position or a parliamentary assistant or move up in the ranks from the backbench. Did you find that was this was, that was the uh, case in when during your time in politics? So the incentives, the incentives within the current construct are to you know if you're trying to work your way up in the House of Commons, if you're trying to get a better uh, a better position, better committee assignments, and so forth, the incentives are always to follow the leader's office. I don't care what party you're in. Uh, it's not to, you know it's not to uh, it's not to carve your own path. Uh, that's for sure. Ask Garth Turner about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that the, um, you know, that that 10 second soundbite is, is because, you know, we uh, typically speaking, um, most people are so busy in their everyday lives that they consume very small amounts of, of federal politics. So if you come up with something kind of snappy or catchy, you hope that that's the piece you can actually put on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. And it might be what goes viral and maybe somebody will notice it because you're fighting against this, this huge crush of information that everybody is absorbing in their everyday lives. And, you know, the last stat I saw is, that, you know, the average Canadian consumes about two minutes a week uh, of information regarding federal politics or issues that are at debate uh, in Parliament. And, uh, and during COVID, it's probably even less than that. And so, yeah, you you see people uh, working for that quick soundbite that might get noticed and uh, and striving for uh, uh, relevance, I guess, amidst the environment that we're in. Uh, I mean, right now, uh, you know, I think Canada is almost uh, uh, even within our own borders and within our, within our own uh, cities and, and so forth it almost seems like we're inundated with international news and international events and all, you know, the things that seem to be most exciting or, or stimulating to cover aren't necessarily what's going on in Toronto or Ottawa or, or any place in Canada. It seems to be everywhere else. Uh, but there's really important issues being debated uh, in parliament. Uh, and, uh, and I think people are, you know, the harder they have to fight for relevance within, within Canada, the more you're going to see those gotcha moments and those, uh, those really snappy 10 second lines that, that sometimes frankly fall flat on their face. And you look at people and you're like, wow, that was just kind of dumb. Right. And, yeah. and, and often it's not reflective of that person either. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but I understand what motivates it. Um, going back to that, uh, 2006 campaign, I've had many politicians on, uh, the show. I asked this question because, they always give a unique answer. You were one of potentially tens of 20 of thousands of Canadians who have been elected a member of parliament in our Canadian history, probably less than 10,000, but you are one of them stepping on the house of commons floor for the very first time. How daunting was that? And how did you take it in for a moment and say, I'm here and now I'm going to be, affecting the lives of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Yeah. Um, so I remember it well the first time I walked out onto the floor of the house, I like walked past the curtains onto the floor of the House of Commons. And it was, uh, 
you know, it was a tremendous honor. I didn't have to walk too far past the curtains because my seat was right against the curtains. Uh, it starts out that way for a lot of people. Uh, and, um, but I just remember being in there and thinking, I think I was one of, at the time, about 4,500 people or give or take that had ever been elected to the House of Commons. Uh, and, um, you know, coming from the background I came from, which was poor farm kid, uh, and uh, the first person in my family to ever graduate from university and, you know, and, you know, knowing the adversity that my family had gone through, my dad's family, which was an immigrant family and so forth. And, you know, seeing the uh, adversity and so forth that we had gone through to get to that point, it was a significant thing and it wasn't lost upon me. Uh, and I felt the, you know, I really wanted to, um, it, it wasn't enough for me to be a part of the government. Uh, and that, and maybe that was one of my frustrations in federal government. I came from small business and I had been making decisions, you know, that directly impacted on, on the direction of that small business for years. Uh, and, um, you know, I then became part of this enormous operation which is government of canada uh and had you know ideas con like constant ideas and concepts and initiatives that i wanted to see undertaken and had to find a way to fit that within to within a party structure within a within a government context whereby you realize government is this it's like this giant ship giant ocean liner going across the ocean and you know at full speed uh and it has a direction and if you want to change the course of that ship, it takes forever. Uh, and that's the reality of government. It's, a, it's not nimble. It doesn't move at the speed of business. It's almost always reactionary. Uh, and for somebody that's, you know, that's kind of very much, you know, always looking for, uh, uh, you know, a, a response, a corresponding response to a decision, uh, that's an adjustment. But I, I remember I was just so full of um, drive, uh, you know, because I wanted so badly uh, to to really, um, you know, see significant things happen and to be a change agent, not just for Peterborough, but for Canada. Uh, and, you know, to the extent that I, I think I, you know, in the end, I was I was successful in that. Uh, and I found a way uh, to drive results and I found a way uh, to punch above uh, above my weight and the riding's weight uh, nationally, uh, you know, I think I was successful at that. But but that really was what dominated me when I when I went into the House of Commons, which was, um, you know, it was an incredible honor. And at the same time, I just wanted to get going. Right? I just looked at it and thought, let's get some stuff done. I've been given this opportunity. That was a minority parliament. Lord knows if I ever win again but I'm going to leave my mark. And, and that was really kind of how I saw it. You were elected twice more after that 2006 election, 2008 and 2011. In 2011, then uh, the Conservatives won a majority government. Uh, the Prime Minister of the time, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, named you parliamentary assistant to the Prime Minister. Uh, I'm not sure if it was right after the election or a few months after the election, yeah. but how was that call? How was that moment of getting that call to say, hey, we need you to defend us in this majority government. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it kind of started like the whole idea of defending the government started in 07 with, uh, with the Mulroney-Schreiber affair. And I was sitting on that committee um, 
I got dragged in during the summer and we had the internet issue before that. I got dragged into that. Uh, I was kind of a person that was seen as someone that could take on these challenges and not get, not get rattled by them. And uh, I've always been able to go, you know, and I think, again, this comes from coming from a big family with a lot of political ideas. You know, debating was a skill that I probably had by from the age of eight. Uh, and, you know, I, I was kind of unflappable. So I got put into these positions of, you know, of representing the government. And um, I was doing a lot of nightly panels even back in 07. Between uh, 2007 and 2013, I think I had done almost three times as many media appearances as, as the next closest person in government. And um, I was named parliamentary secretary uh, to the Minister of Canadian Heritage, James oh, Moore, yeah, uh, after, uh, after the 08 election. Uh, and uh, and the Minister for Sport, who was Gary Lund, which was fantastic because we, we did all the work for the 2010 Olympics uh, through those departments. Uh, and um, and made a significant amount of investments, whether that was into national museums and historic sites and so forth. And, you know, I was really proud of those things. And then uh, after the 2011 election, um, you know, I was rumored by a lot of corners uh, that I was going to be nominated to cabinet. Uh, and, you know, you kind of sit there and wait for the phone to ring because uh, you don't know uh, and you know that, you know, maybe you're under consideration. And at the same time, you have to be realistic that, that the way that cabinet is picked is is not necessarily, as I said, they don't they don't necessarily start with, uh, you know, the people that are, I, I think the prime minister starts with the people that m they must have in cabinet, right? The people that can handle the big portfolios that have that experience. And, and you know, in our, in our government, it started with Jim Flaherty, period. Yeah. Uh, he was our finance minister. He was the best minister in government. Uh, and he was, you know, if there was one person that, you know, I would want to emulate, whether it's in politics or in life, Jim Flaherty just, just loved the guy. Uh, and uh, he was a really good friend of mine. Uh, and, you know, I had to be realistic about the fact that Jim was from half an hour away, right? And, uh, you know, there's other parts of the country that need to be uh, represented in, in cabinet. And uh, so I didn't get that call. Uh, and I remember I was, uh, I was actually at Queens Park, uh, which is not a place I go to or hadn't been to a lot. And it was, uh, it was a uh, kind of a festive day. It was like media day. And I went and uh, I was actually, uh, Dalton McGinty was, uh, was speaking. Uh, it was this all party celebration and so forth. Uh, things were kind of wind, winding down in Queens Park uh, for the, they were about to go on summer recess. And my phone rings uh, and um, I answered the phone, kind of stepped aside and answered the phone. And and uh, it said, stand by, you've got a, a call from the prime minister. And I thought, oh, I better walk out the door here. Uh, you know, and uh, so I walked out into this courtyard and it was uh, University of Toronto and, uh, and it was Stephen on the phone. And, uh, and uh, he said, you know, we've been going back and forth and looking at, uh, at you know, what might be the best position for you. Uh, you know, you've got, you've done a good job, uh, you know, on panels and so forth and representing the government. And, uh, and you've got a really good grip on or grasp on all aspects of, uh, of government. And, uh, you know, uh, when we were trying to decide exactly what portfolio you'd fit best into, um, I kind of decided that I thought you should be my parliamentary secretary. And wow. 
it was a great honor uh, and uh, I was excited about it. Uh, and at the same time, I also knew that with that comes a tremendous amount of uh, expectation and baggage and, and, uh, and focus. And, um, you know, and ultimately it led to uh, me being in a position where I was the one defending the robocall uh, challenge, which, and, and some of the Senate uh, issues, Senate expenditures. And, you know, I, I didn't get the opportunity to uh, cut a lot of uh, ribbons and, and stand with big checks, which is the easy stuff in government. I got kind of handed this stuff where it was like, here, this is kind of a smoldering bag that doesn't smell very well. And uh, you deal with this one. And, uh, and, you know, it takes a you know, it takes a toll on you after a while because you become the face of those things and that's not what you want. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, but it didn't change the fact that it was just a, a tremendous honor. I got to work with incredible people in the prime minister's office. I met with foreign governments and, uh, and representatives of foreign governments regularly. Uh, I, you know, I often screened meetings before people would meet with, uh, whether it was Nigel Wright, who was chief of staff at the time, or the prime minister directly. Uh, they would offer meetings with, with me first and, uh, and, uh, and members of PMO. And, um, you know, it was really, um, you know, as I often said to people, I, I, I was really on the tip of the spear, right? Uh, like there, I was the first point of contact for so many things. Uh, and it was a really, uh, it was a really uh, tremendous experience. Uh, one more, t- uh, per- one more uh, question I have to ask before we move into the next subject here. You, you mentioned Jim Flaherty. Um, his loss was huge to Canada. Do you remember the day you got the? Do you, yeah. I'm assuming you remember the day. What was the first initial reaction that you heard or you had? You know, I. I was just stunned. Uh, I had I had met Jim um, in Florida a couple of months uh, before that, uh, and we had gone out. Uh, we went and saw a hockey game with uh, with his son and uh, uh, John and myself, and uh, we actually uh, met up with uh, uh, a great guy from Peterborough who happens to uh, to play in the NHL, but uh, did at the time named Mike Fisher and. Uh, and it was, you know, we were really, aside from politics, uh, we were we were really good friends. And um, Jim was a guy that uh, I think if you asked, you know, you know, in our first 06 parliament, you know, we had 126 MPs. And I think every one of them would say that they were, you know, of everybody in cabinet, they were probably closest to Jim Flaherty. He just had this ability to be friends with so many people. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, he was likable even across the aisle if people didn't agree with him, but they still liked him. And I think that that was, you know, it was a really kind of transcending ability that he had, uh, to both sell himself and the party and to be that friend and to be that guy and that mentor. And there was nobody in politics that I wanted to be like more than Jim. Uh, and, uh, he gave me great opportunities. Uh, I got to, uh, you know, I got to work directly with him on so many things. And Derek Van Stone, who was his chief of staff uh, at the time, used to say to people, you know, don't talk to Jim. If you want something in a budget, go talk to Del Mastro. He's the only guy Jim seems to listen to. And, uh, you know, it was a tremendous comment. It was a joke, but it was a tremendous compliment. Right. And uh, uh, and, you know, when I got the news, uh, Jim had been 
not well for a while. Uh, and we didn't really know a lot about it. Jim was very private on that. Um, but he was a guy that, you know, was really into uh, keeping himself fit and healthy and well. And, you know, he did a lot of exercise and, you know, he was a tremendous hockey player when he was younger um, and uh, played NCAA hockey. And he was just a tremendous athlete. Uh, and, uh, you know, despite his diminutive size, he was, you know, he, he was, uh, he was really a, a tremendous sports talent. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I remember going into caucus one day and being asked, you know, by, by the media going in, you know, what is wrong with Jim Flaherty? Cause it was, it was obvious, you know, that he was, uh, you know, he was battling something. Uh, and I went to him and I said, Jim, um, you know, I'm happy to take these questions and push people off, but I'm being really depressed about, you know, what is, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're going to make a statement or what might be going on. And Jim went out and told them that he was on prednisone and, you know, that he was battling a blister problem and so forth at the time. And, um, you know, I think that that, um, I think everybody expected that Jim, he had announced that he was retiring. He had stepped back from, being finance minister, I, you know, I was joking with him that they were going to pick him up from parliament in a brakes truck because he was going to make so much money in the private sector. And, you know, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, everybody expected that he would have this great retirement and that when he was able to walk away from the stress that he had been carrying because guiding Canada through some of those things and, and those budgets, yeah. and minority politics, it, you know, it, it, it weighs on people. It ages people. It aged Stephen Harper, right? He was a younger man than Jim uh, when we were elected. Uh, you know, I think we anticipated that he would have this long retirement. When I got that news, I just, it was devastating. Uh, and I remember, you know, uh, James Rajad, who was my roommate uh, in Ottawa, you know, we were, you know, we, we talked to Jim every day. We were, you know, we did, we saw him often. Um, you know, and uh, I remember the two of us just, you know, having this conversation where it was, you know, we were in disbelief, right? It just didn't seem real that this could happen. Um, the last set of questions I want to talk about now is politics, life after politics. How yeah. has it been? How has it been? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, would be an understatement to say things didn't end the way that I intended them to. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I saw the very worst side of, uh, of politics. I think I saw, you know, what I was subjected to over what was really a, an accounting dispute with Elections Canada. And it is an accounting dispute. And I'll go down my last breath maintaining that not only did I do nothing wrong, but I was absolutely correct in, in how we dealt with things. Um, you know, the whole idea that somebody uh, that's never broken a law, that's never, you know, that's only ever sought to um, be part of the solution uh, would be, you know, put into shackles over a check that they wrote to themselves using their own money uh, and a few thousand bucks. It, like, it never even occurred to me that that was a possibility uh, that that would happen. But I think it really was an extension of uh, the partisan divide and ideologies kind of the nastiness that exists uh, in politics today. Um, I remember, you know, when I had to, uh, so I got the verdict on the 31st of October, 
and uh, we were just stunned with that. Like I remember, you know, my wife and I, we were so convinced we won that case. Like you know, we were planning a, you know, a celebration after the, after the verdict, cause we were convinced we'd won. And even, you know, I had been called by the local newspaper and, you know, they indicated, you know, their editorial department, every person in their editorial department felt we had won the case. Right? Uh, and, and they told me that and they asked me kind of what I was thinking going into the verdict and kind of what I was hoping for moving forward. I had, you know, this list of things that I was really looking forward to, to working on. And, you know, within the course of a few hours, that had been completely upended. And, and then on November 2nd, my daughter was born. And this is our, our first and only child. And um, it just kind of changed my focus, right? It took me off of this horrible thing that had just happened, kind of the, the um, uh, I, I guess I had, I had gotten to the point where I almost identified myself as being, that's who I was. And I had, to, I had to grapple with the idea that that wasn't who I was going to be anymore. Uh, and I was now, but at the same time, I was given this incredible gift uh, which was uh, to be Charlotte's dad uh, and for Kelly and I, my wife, to really focus on that next chapter of life. And it was kind of like, in many ways, uh, as, I, as I've said to, to Kelly, uh, that saved me uh, because I, you know, it was such a difficult thing uh, to go through. And, uh, and, you know, I gave my final speech in Parliament. I don't know if you had an opportunity to watch it, but you know, one of the things that I said in that speech was, you know, um, I talked about the seat, the actual physical seat. And I said, you know, it's just a chair, uh, but it embodies the hopes and dreams uh, and visions and opportunities of everyone in this country. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I've actually got that seat. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, it, I still feel that way. And, you know, the transition back to the private sector from politics is difficult at the best of times. And I think for me, it was that much harder uh, because I still had this fight. I went through a couple of appeals and, you know, fighting because, you know, I always wanted not just my family, not just for my family's name, but I really want my daughter to know that her dad's a good guy uh, and I did good things. Uh, and uh, in so much as I may have been controversial from time to time, uh, you know, I stood my ground and fought for what I believed in and, and was rewarded with uh, tremendous support in the community. Uh, and, you know, I hope that my endearing legacy, uh, and, and this is kind of what you get onto, and, you know, I'm not old, I just turned 50, uh, and I hope to be around for a long time yet. Um, you know, but you do hope that your endearing legacy are the relationships you built, uh, the things you got done, uh, and the dreams you were able to impart onto others. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think I reflect on those things a lot. Uh, I've been, you know, I was in business before I was into politics. I went back to business after. Uh, I found some success there. I continue to work uh, towards success. And, you know, I have grand dreams and great expectations uh, for myself. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, politics is one of those things that, you know, I don't know that you ever, I don't know that you ever get it out of your blood uh, or out of your, uh, out of your being. Uh, and I find myself, uh, you know, uh, I can easily be, 
become consumed with news or events of a day and uh, you know and, and i'll be sitting in conversations with groups of people and I'll, I'll be thinking you know they're talking about things that you know that have nothing to do with the news how can this be because i want to talk about you know <laughs> i want to talk about keystone and they want to talk to me uh, and and they want to talk about when our school's going back in and you know i think these are all important issues but you know i i use that only as an example of saying you know that you know, I'm very much still a, uh, still into politics. I'm really, you know, I really feel that the decisions, whether they're made at municipal or provincial or federal level, impact on our lives every day in, in every possible way you can comprehend. And, you know, and I still find myself trying to impress upon people how important these things are. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, it still is something that, uh, you know, is a big part of who I am. So I got to ask one last question with that last statement you just said, if your daughter comes to you at the age of 18 and says, I want to run for politics, what's the first advice you're going to give her? <laughs> well, the first thing I would ask her is why do you want to run? Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember, uh, if, if you don't have an answer for that question, you should never run. Uh, and it should never be about you. And it, you know, it better be about something that, uh, that in my view, anyway, uh, it better be about something that's much bigger than self. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and you should have it figured out long before you ever run. And if you don't have that issue, if you don't have that, you know, whatever it is, um, belief that's driving you to run, then you shouldn't do it. Uh, and, uh, I'd say that to anyone, I've got people that come to me all the time, I want to run for municipal. I want to run for councillor. I want to run. I'm thinking about seeking the party nomination for X or what have you. Uh, and, you know, and I went through this at the last federal uh, election or the last um, conservative leadership campaign, whereby I had people calling me and asking me what I thought of them running for leader or this person running for leader or who I thought, you know, I might support or people might get behind. And, you know, I, I advised a couple of people. I said, do not run. Don't do it. Uh, because, uh, you know, one, it's going to take a lot out of you and two, you know, why, why do something like, I don't really believe in, in doing things for profile. Right. And sometimes people run for leadership for profile. Uh, and, you know, I really think it's important that, you know, uh, if you're going to run, if you're going to do anything in politics, do it to win. Right. Even if you, even if you ultimately lose the election, don't put a half-hearted effort in, don't go halfway. And I think, you know, if my daughter came to me and said, I'm going to run for office, I'd say, okay, we need a plan to win because you're not going to give that much of yourself and you're not going to take that much abuse on, you know, not to win. Uh, and secondly, uh, you know, you've really got to have it well-defined what is driving you. Because if you don't have a, if you don't have this kind of pure purpose and a sense of purpose as to why you're running and why you and not somebody else, uh, then, you know, I just don't think it's something you should get into because it is, um, it's not glamorous, uh, as, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's incredibly rewarding. It's the, it's the honor, you know, it's the professional honor of my life. The greatest honor of my life was, uh, uh, was, uh, you know, my, uh, my wife saying, uh, uh, agreeing to marry me and, uh, and, you know, the second greatest honor, uh, the professional honor, 
was being elected to politics uh, uh, by by my peers uh, here in you know in my hometown, in my home community. Um, but it, with it comes tremendous responsibility, uh, and you put your life under a microscope, and you'll never go back to being that person that you were before. Uh, your you know your your reputation and and kind of who you are and and that's permanently changed and you kind of see the world differently when when you get to the other side of it you, you don't just go back to uh you know some some bridges get severed uh and and not for uh, just because you're busy and you get into different uh it's so encompassing that other people move on with their lives other things you know life continues uh, when you're not there and you don't get to go back and resume things where they were you're you you come to a different point and you restart from there uh, so you have to be realistic about you know how this changes who you are what you are and what you do moving forward and and I think people going into it need to be mindful of that uh, certainly I can say for business and if you're in small business uh, and I had uh, you know I had a friend of mine uh, who ran provincially, uh, who had been in business in Peterborough that came to me when I first announced that I was going to run. And he said, you know, the impact on your business will all be bad. None of it will be good. He said, you think it's going to help you? He said, but it doesn't. Uh, and what I could say is um, uh, we did, uh, you know, in my family and so forth, did experience that challenge of having somebody in office, uh, right, whereby they were almost by extension uh, responsible for things that I, you know, votes that were being had or positions of the government and they had no influence over it. Right. But, but it does impact on, on other people. So uh, it, you know, anybody that's running, whether it's advice to my daughter or advice to anybody else, you know, it's just, it's a yes. If you feel a passion for it, you know, uh, and you, you feel it's something you need to do, then you should absolutely do it. Uh, one of the things that always bothers me, whether it's in federal politics, provincial politics, municipal politics, is people running because they need a job. And the first thing I'll look at people and say, you know what, um, it's, it's not that kind of a profession, right? It's not something you do because you don't know what else to do with your life. It's something you do because you feel you have something to give to it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, I think that that's, I think that's the, uh, that's really what should drive people to go into public office, uh, because it's, uh, it can be tremendously rewarding, but it can also be tremendously taxing, uh, and you'll never quite be, uh, you'll never go back to what you were before that. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dean, I want to thank you so much for this. This has been enlightening and I appreciate you taking your time out of your day and sitting down and chatting with me today. Yeah, I, I, I like the, uh, I, I see some of the vintage uh, campaign stuff behind yes. you there. I think that's a tremendous little collection you've got going on there, campaign oh. button, but I may uh, send me your address. I'll, I'll fire one off to you. So you got one in the background. I was about to say, because I, we just had to buy a third one because we're, we've gotten too much. So, so yes, I will do that. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes 
or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown & Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye.